This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. This election, we will follow two political neophytes. They are running for office for the first time, learning about politics from the inside, and sometimes stumbling. Electra Johnson is a Democratic candidate for El Paso County Commissioner. Kevin Sippel is a Republican candidate for Boulder County Commissioner. They are both in the political minority in their respective counties. In fairness to their opponents, we've asked them to largely steer clear of issues and focus on what it's like to run at a time when just 19 percent of Americans say they trust government. That's according to the Pew Center. And welcome to both of you. Thank you. Thank you. Nice to have you on the program. So, Electra, you're 42, an architect by trade. You'd never been to a caucus before this year. What got you involved? I had a canvasser come by my house. I was really, really depressed about the the conversation going on nationally about immigrants, about women across the board. And a canvasser came by my house and his enthusiasm brought me into the group and I caucused for the first time and I was astonished in El Paso County. I thought I was the only Democrat. And it turned out there were a thousand people at my local grade school and the room that I was in, in my precinct, was absolutely packed. And uh, so that's kind of what, what 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 got me involved. Oh, right. And this canvasser was for a particular candidate? Or? Yes, he was a Bernie, Bernie canvasser. His name is Jason Block. And Sylvia Perez was another canvasser, and they're both helping me with my campaign now. And their enthusiasm for the future, which I was feeling very bleak about, really, really engaged me and and brought brought me into the conversation. Was there something they said? Can you remember a line or an idea? Well, it was two platform ideas. We we've um, one was basically talking about student loan reform, and the other was talking about uh, um, health care for all. And we've I've had some some incidences in the last couple of years that that relate to those on a very personal level. So you were a delegate at the county assembly in March. Um, and then you walked out as a candidate for elected office, as we said, uh, for a commissioner in El Paso County. What the heck happened? How did, how did how did that transformation occur? Well, it was it was sort of actually at the at the caucus level. It, it started there, and and basically all seventy five percent of my neighbors were for for Bernie, and nobody stood up. And so I stood up with my child on my hip to go and, to the assembly. No, it, and and got de- uh, designated to go as a delegate to the assembly. Mm-hmm. And then at the assembly, uh, it, there was a series of events that sort of pushed me into this role. And I ended up in a room and two people stood up. One nominated himself. And I was just astonished at the process. It was like the blinders came off. And I raised my hand as we were about to take a vote. And I said, are you kidding me? This is how our officials are elected? And then at that point, uh, the Bernie organizer, Cynthia Pullum, turned around and said, well, can I nominate you? And the Hillary speaker, uh, Judy Angelito, uh, said, well, I'll second it. Uh, and, and basically at that point, um, it was kind of a split second decision. And I'd worked with county commissioners. I do urban design and, um, and I do architecture. And I'd worked with them. So I was semi-familiar with the job. But um, that's basically what happened. What astonished you? What astonished me was how 
the assembly was being pushed in uh, in a different direction. So the assembly, the 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 entire process, the entire process, um, it wasn't run in an orderly and contained way. Uh, it felt somewhat manipulated and and I I also was astonished that we literally can have two people walk off the street and just nominate themselves and you you don't have to know anything about them and they're suddenly your candidate that oh. was astonishing to me Kevin Sipple, you're 60 and a founder of the Eldorado Natural Spring Water Company now retired what made you want to run for office this year and again you're a Republican in Boulder County Whereas uh, uh, your compatriot here, Electra Johnson, is a Democrat in El Paso County. But what got you involved? It's sort of a similar thing, except uh, just the reverse. I started going to caucuses three years ago in the 2012 election. I never had. I just uh, decided to go to one. I went to it. It was at uh, our local high school in South Boulder. And uh, I was uh, surprised how few... Republicans there were. The room wasn't packed. Uh, there was, in my precinct, three people showed up for uh, my precinct. Uh, so I ended up getting elected to be the precinct committee person and the delegate to the the county assembly. At that time, um, we it, they've done things differently. Each of the three election seasons I've been to the county assembly, that time everyone had to run kind of as a group and give a 30-second speech, and then everyone in the room voted for them, what to be, whether to go to the state assemblies or not. And uh, I was lucky and able to go. Uh, I did the state assemblies twice and the county assemblies all three election seasons I've been involved with. And um, the the closest thing to astonishing that I saw was how many um, uh, offices were uncontested by Republicans because they just naturally assumed a Republican can't win. And that assumption is still sort of there, uh, but I'm being pretty positive about my efforts. Running for county commissioner in, in Boulder County. And that leads to my next question for both of you. I suppose to some extent you've already answered this, Kevin, but do you think you have a snowball's chance or is the race something of, of a symbol for you uh, as a Democrat in El Paso County? How do you answer that, Electra? Well, there hasn't been a Democrat sitting on the commission for 40 years. Okay. So so that that gives you some indication of the way that El Paso County, which includes Colorado Springs and Manitou Springs and um, Ute Pass and whatnot, and Palmer Lake and Monument, it gives you an indication of the, the polarities there. But this is an interesting year. We had so many people turn out. And many of those people turned out, the majority of the people turned out at the Democratic level for Bernie Sanders. And that energy has rolled into my campaign. And I've had all these people volunteer. I've met the best people of my life in El Paso County. And Kevin, how do you answer that? Uh, it's uh, a little of both. Um I've met the best people of my life in uh, this, too. Uh, naturally, I'm still fond of my old partners and the people in my old company, and I still see them all regularly. But um, when I first uh, got to the – I started going and volunteering at the Boulder County Republican headquarters soon after I became a precinct committee person. I uh, started calling all the Republicans in my district, uh, my my 
uh, which there's only, there's like 260 independents, 240 Democrats, and 84 or so Republicans. Oh, wow. And the first question I got from almost all of them was, you mean there's other Republicans in our precinct? I'm, I'm not alone here? Exactly. Uh-huh. That's that's. And another thing that I was surprised at was when I started uh, going to the Boulder County um, Executive Committee meetings just to kind of watch and um, be part of it. Uh, I was really impressed at um, how, what kind of good people they were, good family people, just like naturally Democrats can be too. But um, they were very careful to follow every election law, every campaign finance law, just very careful and Precise. You mentioned campaign finance law. I'd like to talk to both of you about the nuts and bolts of running for office and how familiar you were with them. We're speaking to two political neophytes whom will follow throughout uh, the election season. Electra Johnson is a Democratic candidate for El Paso County Commissioner, and Kevin Sippel is a Republican candidate for Boulder County Commissioner. So, Electra, how how familiar were you with with the finer points of running for office, and have you stumbled? Well, I voted before this. Okay. This is, is, is the extent of my political involvement. Yeah. And I thought that democracy was well and alive. And it's been an interesting lesson. I've had like a doctoral lesson in the last three months learning about the entire process. I was not familiar at all. And I basically have been talking to so many people and getting ideas and opinions and how to run and how to run a campaign. But obviously, if there hasn't been one other than Michael Merrifield and Pete Lee are the first Democrats to have won a seat in El Paso County. And we uh, there hasn't really been one for for quite a while. Have you made mistakes so far? Um. Well, I, I've I had three debates this this week, and I think I'm getting a little bit better at public speaking. There's okay. certainly some nervousness there. Um, and what about those finer points, campaign finance, for instance, and disclosure? Oh, I have made mistakes. Yes, immediately the first thing I did was um, my uncle Per in Sweden sent me a hundred bucks, which I immediately had to return because he's foreign. <laughs> so I did that immediately, and then oh, because uh, he's forbidden. To donate to my campaign, yes. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> and so I called the secretaries of state, the secretary of state's office, and they've been incredibly helpful. And they said, "No, you have to return it." And I did immediately. Okay. And uh, Kevin, for you, stumbling blocks? Um, I was um, I I had only voted until the first caucus I went to uh, three seasons ago. Yeah. Um, the. Um, uh, the, the campaign finance issues, the Secretary of State has an excellent uh, set of like training seminars they put on for new candidates in order to teach us about who we can and can't take money from, how much we can get. And it's pretty complicated uh, depending on what kind of candidate you are. There's limits of this much or that much uh, different for state Senate candidates and um, state congressional districts and county commissioners. And... Um, didn't you two meet at we met yes, at like a did. workshop at the Secretary of State's office? Yes, that's correct. Yes. Mm-hmm. So would you say that there's ample support for people who want to get in at the grassroots level? On some level. On some level. I think, I think you have to be pretty resourceful to figure it out. Um, so there has been support. My greatest support has been from Bernie supporters coming together to help me figure out all the workings. 
And it's a lot to learn in a short period. It's about messaging, about how to put together a campaign, how to finance a campaign. Uh, and in local elections, we don't have any limits, which is another thing. So, Kevin, have you felt supported in this? I felt very supported by the, um, the group that's the Boulder County Republicans. Uh, there, there's been uh, numerous people that are still involved there, uh, very dedicated people, that have run for these positions before and not made it because there's roughly three quarters Republican or three quarters Democrats in Boulder County. Yeah. So it's a, a well trod road for other Republicans that you're going down. Um, I, I want to ask just briefly, Electra, it sounds like you got kind of um, very quickly into the idea of running for the county commission. Did you have a moment to, like, talk to your family? Well, <laughs> yes. Yeah, so after after basically what happened is I stood up at that moment, and then uh, John Morris, who was running the room, asked me to speak. And the other two candidates spoke, and I stood up to speak. And I ended up, each candidate got their own nomination as their own vote, and I had the rest of the room. So I had 98% of, of the room, which automatically puts me on the ballot. I had about a week of a heart attack, thinking, what have I done? (sighs) And I I talked to my husband. He said that you have been so passionate about regenerative and sustainable infrastructure, and this goes completely along the lines of what a county commissioner does. This is not about you. Just go for it. Well, thanks so much to both of you for being with us, and we'll, we'll check back in as your campaigns evolve. Thank you so much. Thank you. Electra Johnson, Democratic candidate for El Paso County Commissioner, and Kevin Sippel, Republican candidate for Boulder County Commissioner. As we said, we'll check in with them from time to time for a newcomer's perspective on the political process. And in fairness to their opponents, we'll try to stay away from the issues. You can also find links to the websites of their opponents at cprnews.org. Still to come, folk singer and farmer Gregory Allen Isakoff. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Colorado's weather forecast has rising temperatures across the state. Pretty warm already today and even warmer on Friday. This is Colorado Public Radio. You could hit 100 degrees for Grand Junction this afternoon. Upper 90s along the western slope. 90s in Pueblo. Near 90 for Denver and Boulder and Fort Collins today and getting warmer on Friday. Up around 95 for the Denver area tomorrow. In the mountains, highs in the 60s and the chance for rain this afternoon. This is Colorado Public Radio. At cprnews.org, you can get to know the new editor of the Denver Post. It's the first time a woman has held that job. And the Colorado man who made a big splash on social media and now on America's Got Talent with his version of a heavy metal classic. John Hetlinger is from Broomfield. He's 82 years old and still rocking. And his story and a lot more Colorado news is there at the website that you can see anytime. It's cprnews.org. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. The music of folk singer Gregory Allen Isakoff is often intimate. Sometimes it sounds like a whisper. 
but it takes on a much bigger sound on his new album. He is backed on this record by the Colorado Symphony. Over the years, when we have interviewed Isakoff, his Boulder County farm looms large. Agriculture brought him to Colorado, and this is his refuge. When he's not on the road, he says he buys the largest container of coffee creamer he can, so he never has to leave this place. His studio is here as well. It's where he mixed this album, which is out tomorrow. And we walked around the property together. This is a butter lettuce, heirloom butter lettuce. Um, Three varieties of kale, arugula, six varieties of broccoli rabe, four varieties of beets, chard. And this, again, will be all seed we're saving, you know. You're essentially a seed farm this year. This year, yeah. So do you think Um, of yourself as a farmer, a musician, a farmer musician? I don't know. I, I mean, I went to horticulture school. That's how I came out to Colorado. Music was sort of something that I just did in in the privacy of my kitchen for nobody forever and then I started playing out and it kind of just scared the shit out of me and I was like I better do this you You, I think the term these days everyone is using is you leaned in to the fear I did I'm still having fun with it (laughs) having fun with the fear (laughs) what are you afraid of about making music I think it's just um how vulnerable and uh, the rush of, of being vulnerable and Kind of inviting people into your world is such a it's such a trip for me. Are you a more successful farmer or musician? <laughs> I don't know. You know, it's it's they're both things that I'm. I feel like I'm never gonna master. <laughs> I think this is my twelfth season of gardening in a spot. You know, um, I've moved around different farms and stuff, but I'm still like, how does this work? Every time we're seeding, we're like, this is crazy. We put things in the ground, they just come up. Is yeah, that a bit like crazy. songwriting? I probably there's probably a lot of connections. I feel like a crazy person every day because I'm just running around fixing wells, ditches, and running back to the studio to finish something. Or, you know, I feel like I'm constantly just like an insane person in their robe with like bunny slit, you know, cigarette burns all over myself. You know, it's just like an insane person. You have sheep too, don't you? Yeah, we got sheep. You want to come to you? Sure. Oh, there they are. Yeah, there they are. Are those those are goats? They're sheep. They're, they're sheep. Oh boy, you can tell I've been in the city too long. No, they look like they're straight hair sheep. Oh, okay, that's so, why it's throwing me. Called katahdins. Yeah, they. We don't have to shear them. They kind of dread out. See so yeah, how they're kind of. It's kind of fallen off of them, which are great for touring bands. They're great pets for touring bands. Wait, why are because these great? They just no maintenance. They're just. They're like the cat of like, livestock. They're the cats of livestock. Do they ba when totally. you're recording? Uh, when they're in the stable sometimes, but we've double insulated that room pretty good. You know, so once in a while you'll get chickens or sheep. Can we go into your studio? Sure. Take you this way. On our way there, though, I want to ask you about this property. So it's got like, I don't know, five buildings on it maybe. And, and you live here with some of the bandmates, don't you? Yeah. Um, with Steve, our guitar player, and um, Jamie lives in the back trailer. Our engineer, he also works for Nathaniel. 
Nathaniel Rateliff mm-hmm. of Now the Night Sweats. So he's never here now because <laughs> they're always out. And so do you Just think of this as like an artist's colony? Yeah, I think everyone here is an artist. Yeah, everyone is. Is this what you pictured it was your a, life being? It, it was unintentional, but it's, I'm pretty stoked. In the studio, there's a lot of newfangled equipment. I mean, I see an Apple computer, for instance, but I also see, is that like an analog tape machine? Yeah, that's, there's a couple tape machines and a couple keyboards. Uh, this is a Rhodes, it's a Whirly upright piano. And to what extent is your music and this album with the CSO done on analog equipment? All of it was mixed on, onto tape, through tape. But yeah, we mixed on the computer as well. And but then, what did the tape provide you? It always kind of glues records together, in my experience. It's sort of just, um, and you can hear maybe it's a little fuller and more low end without the tape. Maybe it's like a little more clean and pristine, but then tape kind of glues everything together. It makes it feel like a record. Is it a warmth? It is, oh provides? yeah. It has a, a, a lot of warmth. Now I circle the bars on the promenade While the girls in the glass, they just throwing me shade I'm saving my coins of Jingle and Jane She's out plucking strings in the pouring pour And she's out plucking strings in the pouring rain you recorded with the symphony at Betcher Hall, but then you did post-production here. Yeah. Yeah, this is where I'm making a new record right now as well. Hence every, all the papers and <laughs> microphones and <laughs> drums out right now. <laughs> so one well-publicized fact about you is that you tend to write lyrics on, like, these giant post-it <laughs> Yeah, I do. I love, well, I, I just get annoyed with flipping pages, you know, with a guitar. And you're, like, right at the end of the page, and you have to, like, find the next... I hate that feeling. So, so then were those I got, the giant post-its? Yeah, I got then. So I got really into these these giant post-it notes. So I put them up on this wall mainly. Will you read a few of these lyrics for me? What's oh, this? Sure. Uh, this is this turned into Master and Hound. This was kind of the rough sketches, hence the coffee. But uh, you know, it was a different song a little bit. You know, you can tell where it kind of came from. Oh yeah, where were you when I was still kind? A water trader waiting on the line. It's just a dry gin drink on the curb, under home. Turn to sake I understand that the first and the last lyrics of a song are especially important to you? You know, yeah, I'm always hunting for first lines and last lines. I really, you're kind of um, starting the relationship with the song. You're like being proactive and we're going to be like, hey, I got the first line. You want to help me finish this? So it's like this kind of living thing that you're working on. And sometimes it can take months and months and months, you know, to just wait for the rest of it to come. But I, I feel like that's my job initially, to really... Is to get on the right footing with a song. Yeah. One thing that I hear in your voice is an intimacy. It draws you in. Like, you're not a belter, like, I don't know, 
you're no Ethel Merman, Gregory no, Allen Isaac. <laughs> no. um, and yet, working with an orchestra, it strikes me that you might have to be a belter, or maybe there's just good amplification. Did you have to sing differently for this record? No. I, uh, I was curious about how the collaboration was going to work out, just musically. And, you know, space is really important to me in the music. So, What do you mean by space? It's just kind of the, uh, our biggest ally. I'm always adding space, cutting out lines, cutting out action in, in music so things can breathe. So it's spare. Yes, and sparse. So I was like really curious about a 75-piece orchestra. Which feels very heavy. In yeah, giant. And so we recorded 15 songs, and yeah, we chose the ones that just really had, they had both. They had that epic soaring thing that you would kind of expect. And they also have this great intimacy that we were so stoked about that we got. Where does that come out? Give, give me an example of a track. I think Liars is a good track that has like, you know, there's almost nothing for half the song when everything kind of lands. Liar is the one new track for this yes, album. Yes, it? it is, yeah. Um, so kind of like that line when it says, uh, Been riding, riding lots, lots of trains. trains. Uh, that's like, you know, 80 of us kind of landing right there. Same ones as you. How come you get to talk? Everybody just looking out my window the night view. You keep on pointing out my halo. Big pointing finger, six fingered hand. I sold all this land. I'd be some dreams. Just like those How much did you have to change songs so they worked with the orchestra? And you had some help in that, I think, from, oh, yeah, from a member of Devochka. Tom Hagerman, yeah, and, and Jake Clifford. Yeah, from Jump Little Children. Both yeah. killer musicians. And um, totally got the songs. They kind of get it. They weren't interested in, like, we have to use everything all the time, you know? I think there's a lot of woodwinds that are just kind of have 18 bars of rest, which, you know, you want to kind of bring... As an arranger, as a composer, you want to bring everything in eventually, but for some of these songs, just didn't call for it. So um, That has to be the mind-boggling part of working with an orchestra, is there are millions, really, of, of directions you could go. So many options. Gosh, did that keep you up at night? It was like a six to nine month sleepless process. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so we'd go back and forth with these arrangements, you know. And they were trippy because they were just MIDI. Um, oh, very kind of lo-fi, low-grade low versions. Of the songs. Even the vocal line was like MIDI male vocal, like keyboard sound. Like It was uh, like an old cell phone rig. Totally. Okay. And so we were kind of mapping everything out but you could hear you know what it, what they were going to sound like you know and the band and I would rehearse to those MIDI recordings before we got a chance to get into Betcher mm-hmm. 
More of my conversation with folk singer Gregory Allen Isakoff after a break. We'll get a preview of his next new album. Its working title is Midnight Machines. For now, you're hearing his new release with the Colorado Symphony. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Let's return to the farm and recording studio that Gregory Allen Isakoff calls home. It's in Boulder County. The folk singer has a new album with the Colorado Symphony, adding an orchestral sound to tracks that mostly come from his previous records. He'll tour with a smaller group of classical musicians. And all this means that he has reworked these songs countless times. I asked him if he'd rather be working on new material. You know, it's funny. I, I'm I'm almost done a new record right now that I've been working on for about a year, and I'm still working on some of the writing. And I'm I usually the way I work is I make a record, and then I let it sit for like three to five months. And or some come, of your fans would say years. Maybe yeah, <laughs> it can it can it can be, and then I come back to them and make sure I still feel something when I hear them, um, because I think when we finish something. We're excited about it, you know. It's our favorite. Our, our favorite songs are the brand new songs that we're working on today. Right, but if they endure months later in your head, that means they're good. If they live, then you know they're going to live longer. Sometimes they don't, and sometimes the one I, ones I really want to work don't work. So I need that amount of time. That that amount of time is really a huge ingredient for me to make records. And that isn't necessarily the record business. No. Which I suppose is why you're on your own label, right? Best label ever. <laughs> because you know the boss, I guess, yeah. don't you? Yeah, Sarah treats me good. And This is Sarah Levine. Who's uh, Sarah Levine's one of my old best friends. and She's been, here with us. We've been working together for, what, a while? Decades, she says. And, you know, she we started out, she lent me her car to play South by Southwest. We drove down to Austin and handmade CDs in the back seat and been working together the whole time. What can you say about the forthcoming album? Uh, yeah, it's got a working title Midnight Machines I've been working on. It sort of just is what this place looks like in the middle of the night and there's all these glowing tubes everywhere. And I, I just like always picture that like you know, that mad scientist part of us like <laughs> with the swinging light or something but a lot of the songs are are new and then some are like voice memos from like 2011 that I did in like a hotel room or something and so I've been kind of digging into old stuff too and kind of reworking some writing and could we hear a little something from the forthcoming album sure okay this is one that um I just sort of finished that I've been kind of working with for a year or so what's it called uh San Luis like the valley like the valley by road in California but that's how songs are you know Inspiration is not place specific. No way. But is it about the valley? Um, I think so. <laughs> yeah. I'm a ghost to you, you're a ghost to me, a bird's eye view, San Luis. Gregory Allen Isaacoff. It seems like a lot of your music has themes of travel, whether it's like a literal road trip across the country or maybe a figurative journey through life. First of all, do you agree? <laughs> I think it makes, yeah, I think I, I do draw on a lot of like sense of place. And how much of that is this place where we're standing? A lot of, I make a lot of stuff here, but I, you know, I write a lot, kind of scribble around everywhere I go and 
um, this is my place to kind of go through all of it, you know, kind of piece it together. A lot of musicians have a hard time writing on the road. It doesn't sound like that's a problem for you. No. I think the practice of writing, you know, is something I I do every day. And then there's a few things that are kind of worthy of song, but a lot of it just goes into the parts yard or just kind of, maybe I'll come back to that later, but probably not. But probably not. A lot of it will be lost. Man, you... You've never seen my trash can. It's gigantic. The stuff that I throw away is so much, you know. But isn't that a mark of good writing, that you're willing to throw a lot of stuff away and separate the wheat from the chaff? To to give you a farming metaphor. (laughs) Well, I think it's it's part of any art, any craft. You know, you're always refining, refining. And you have to make a lot of material, and you kind of fearlessly, and then hopefully you get something good. You you have been quoted as saying that you don't consider yourself a very strong songwriter. I mean, at the risk of being obsequious, I, I just think that's such baloney. I don't know about anything like that. I I guess I don't really think um, of myself as like this great musician. You know, like I'm working with all these. My band is amazing. They're all like this understanding of their instruments is incredible and i'm sort of just like banging away on like a c and an f and you know and maybe i'll use the capo a couple of times so i i guess that I, I just don't live in that realm when i'm writing i just sort of write to a, a line or a melody and everything falls around that and obviously your band fills in yeah a lot huge yeah i understand that one songwriter you particularly admire is, is bruce springsteen yeah i love him what what about him he put out a record in the 90s called ghost of tom jode yeah. which was like maybe one of my favorite records of all time. He's able to paint this landscape so efficiently and tell these stories so amazingly from start to finish. A lot of people listen to music so differently now. I'm a big fan of listening to like whole records, you know, and I make records for people that maybe like to do that too. But I have no judgment about, oh, someone wants to just buy a single or listen to this song while they run or whatever it is, you know. Uh, why don't you leave us with one more track from the new record with the Colorado Symphony? Do you want to say a few words about Big Black Car? Sure. Um, I don't really know where a lot of the songs come from. That particular song, um, I think, was... It happened really quickly. It was one of those songs that I think we get spoiled by as songwriters because some can just be, you know, nine-month situations and that one happened pretty swiftly you were a phonograph i was a kid i saw more than air close just listening there when the rain tapped away down your face you were a miracle i was just holding your space what's it about um i don't know hmm it's funny it's the second time you've said that it's not important for you to know what a song is about no it just, it, the most important thing is that it takes you to a place and then it brings you back somewhere. That's, I think, like the magic of writing. You know, and that's the coolest thing about music is it'll just transport you somewhere. And in this case, in a big black car with the Colorado Symphony. <laughs> yeah. Gregory, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you so much, too. Well, time has a way of throwing it all in your face. The past she's haunted, the future is late. Heartbreak, you know, drives a big black car I swear I was in the backseat Just minding my own 
Fill the glass, the corn crows come like rain. They won't stay, they won't stay for too long now. This could be all that we know. Singer-songwriter Gregory Allen Isakoff, who invited us onto his farm and into his studio in Boulder County. His album, With the Colorado Symphony, is out tomorrow. Isakoff also has top billing at Red Rocks, September 4th. You can find the music video for his song, Liars, at cprnews.org. And we'll be right back with extreme sports medicine, a discipline that's trying to keep up with athletes. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Extreme athletes and the doctors who treat them gather in Boulder tomorrow for the International Extreme Sports Medicine Congress. Seminars this year include surfing injuries, big waves and sharp reefs, and fatalities in skiing and snowboarding from avalanche to objects collision. The organizer is surgeon and extreme athlete Omer Maidan. We spoke to him in 2014 ahead of the inaugural Congress. Dr. Maidan, thank you for being with us. My pleasure. Thank you. Let's talk about your own extreme sports career before we get into practicing medicine in this area. I understand you became enamored with uh, adventure and perhaps risk at a very young age. Correct. Um, I, I was an athlete, you know, since I remember myself, but um, I started being involved in extreme sports in general when I was about 10 years old or so. I think I started, uh, I took up surfing first, but then uh, rock climbing and skydiving, obviously parachuting, navigation, mountain biking, everything just followed quite quickly. I understand you're Israeli. I didn't know that there was much of a surfing community there on the Mediterranean. There wasn't back there. You know, I'm talking about back then, uh, 25 years ago when I started surfing, um, there was not really a community. And that's why when I started, I was, me and my brother were the only one out there in the ocean. My folks were sitting in the car when it was hailing outside. We didn't have any wetsuits, so we're essentially surfing with sweatshirts. And it was uh, quite interesting, I would say. As an adult, you switched sports going more from uh, water to the sky, I keep on surfing uh, whenever I have the time, but obviously living here in Colorado, it's not something that, you know, it's close by, uh, like <laughs> the mountains that we have here. Uh, but yet, definitely in the past, I would say 15 years or so, I'm way more involved in uh, rock climbing, ice climbing, base jumping, uh, wingsuit flying, and such. Uh, let's just describe base jumping for those who aren't familiar with that. So base jumping, essentially, first of all, base jumping is an acronym that stands for uh, jumping of these objects, which are buildings, antenna span and earth, meaning cliffs. And essentially, base jumping, it's like skydiving from an object. So you don't jump from a plane, you jump from a cliff, from a building, from an antenna, and uh, such. Much more dangerous version of, um, of skydiving, and you usually carry only one shoot. There is no reserve. In base jump, many times we jump from very low objects. So usually if you jump off uh, a plane, it... 11,000 feet or so, you will usually open your chute somewhere around 3,500. And base jumping, sometimes the exit point itself is about 500 feet above the ground. Again, base is uh, building, antenna, span, and earth. And then what was the other thing? Uh, sky, what was it? <laughs> Are you referring to wingsuit flying? Wingsuit flying. So yeah, wingsuit is uh, one of the uh, fastest 
evolving sub-disciplines in base jumping and skydiving. It was uh, developed in the past um, 15 years or so, I would say, putting together base jumping and wingsuit together, becoming a much more dangerous pursuit. And we see about 18 to 25 wingsuit-based fatalities every summer, which is huge, uh, considering the fact that there is less than 500 wingsuit-based jumpers in the world. Oh, wow. Well, you can see images of the sport at cprnews.org. It looks like they're wearing flying squirrel suits. It's an amazing sport, but it requires a lot of experience and there is no margin for error. And that's why if you don't calculate things properly, there's a very high chance you end up injuring yourself or more commonly just would end up as a fatality. And so when you work with patients who are extreme athletes, you have some cred with them because you've done this stuff. Uh, You became a surgeon. And I wonder what kinds of injuries you see that are unique to athletes like yourself. So base jumpers, climbers, white water kayakers, you know, the, the kinds of people we know concentrate quite heavily in Colorado. Obviously, it would um, differentiate between trauma, meaning acute injuries to overuse injuries like we usually see in sports medicine. The acute and traumatic injuries can be sometimes horrendous, uh, very similar to what we'll see in car accidents or in major collisions. However, the treatment and definitely the rehabilitation and the return to play aspects would be totally different between the casual person and extreme sports athlete. And they would like to return to the sports much earlier. But we have to understand that as surgeons, as doctors, we cannot usually clear them back to daily activities or sports activities like we would with a football player or a soccer player or a baseball player. Let's say, for instance, you had a shoulder dislocation and okay. you had a surgery on that shoulder and now the shoulder is stabilized. If you are a pitcher, you will gradually go back to pitching by pitching you know, uh, um, easily at the beginning. And if you feel that you somehow crossing the line and you maybe sideline yourself for a while until you feel stronger... If you're going to clear one of these skydivers or base jumpers to go back to do whatever they want to do, meaning their own sports, and they would re-dislocate in the air, they would die. They would not be able to pull their chute. Right. There's no margin in that case. You either are better when you do it or you're not. Correct. And and you have to know how to rehabilitate these type of people, uh, both, by the way, mentally, not only physically, so they can go back to pursue their sports without endangering themselves again. Give me another example. Uh, that would be the same, by the way, for whitewater kayakers. So kayaking is one of the commonest sports to uh, that, that tend to result in shoulder dislocation. And let's say that your kayak has flipped and now you want to roll it back. If the shoulder would re-dislocate because you're not strong enough and you didn't manage to rehabilitate it well, you would not be able to obviously save your life and maybe you drown. And that would be the same for other type of injuries for downhill mountain bikers or for rock climbers, obviously with different body organs. So the main thing here that we are trying to establish and define a new subspecialty in our sports medicine field uh, that will know how to address these type of very unique patients and to know how to talk to them eye level to make sure that they would follow the right treatment. Um, Obviously, prior to that, the right diagnosis, the right treatment, and more than everything, the right rehabilitation so they can go back to uh, pursue the sport safely. And bring me to the rehabilitation. So what does that look like or sound like that's different? If you know that the, the patient being rehabilitated has no room for error when they get back into their sport, how does that differ 
at the rehabilitation center? How, did the, how does the conversation sound different? So we have to test them in similar scenarios in a sterile manner to what they would encounter once they are back doing their thing. So we know how to do that with soccer players. We know how to do it with football players. We know how to do it with volleyball players. We not yet know how to do it well with extreme sports athletes. One, because many of the doctors and the surgeons around the world are not well familiar with these sports and with the different nuts and bolts of every sport and the return to play. And we need to learn and we need to share our experience. And that's what this conference does or aim to do. Do you ever, as a doctor, just tell a patient, you've got to stop this if you want to live a long life? Um, <laughs> I mean, is the, is the best medical advice sometimes to just say, don't do this again? Not me. <laughs> They're not going to hear that from you. They're not going to hear it from me. I think that everybody has the right to practice the sport that he loves and pursue his dreams. Um, my role as a doctor is to fix him, to make sure that he's going to return to his sport safely. And then it's up to him. But a doctor would tell someone who smokes, stop smoking. It's bad for your health. And I, I, I don't mean to say that someone's sport is like smoking, but if it carries a similar risk, you talked about the, the risk of those flying suit base jumpers. I mean... Is it not a doctor's role to eventually just go stop? So our role, and we actually have done it in the past five years and keep on doing that, is researching better what are the reasons for the injuries and fatalities in each one of these sports. And once we learn that, we know how to recommend them in order to try and maybe do the sports in a safer way. As we learn with regard to helmets, um, the same with the type of training and what would be the cutoff of experience before you're going to pursue the next level. I'm wondering, like, if you're an NFL player earning many, many millions of dollars a year, I suppose healthcare costs aren't a real big question, and it might be that the team takes care of that uh, as well. But if you're a base jumper, can you find insurance? That's actually a very good question. For, so first of all, yes, uh, the NFL players are uh, usually being taken care of by their teams, which is great. I remember that 20 years ago when I wanted to uh, insure myself, um, as a base jump, it was very hard for me to do so, and I had to go to you know some sub insurers and to go out actually outside of my country, you know, to try and obtain insurance. Oh. Nowadays, with the involvement of the extreme sports and the gain popularity all around and the X Games, you know, it's becoming much more popular, and insurance companies are more acceptable to that concept, and it's easier to get that. I wouldn't say that it's cheap, but it's feasible. We've talked about the, re- the physical recovery for extreme athletes. How do they differ mentally from an everyday athlete or, or frankly, a baseball player or something? I think that mentally they're a bit different than the regular athlete out there, um, both in understanding how to deal with their fears and with their goals. And many times, again, even so they will get injured, they will still be able to function with that injury in order to get themselves out of the hole, sometimes literally out of the hole. And we have to understand that they are very strong mentally and they would sometimes be able to cope with danger and with uh, challenges and difficulties that other people in general wouldn't. And we have to know how to go around that without trying again to take them off their route. Can you think of someone who illustrates this, an extreme athlete who just uh, fits the mental profile you've painted for us? 
in one of my studies um, that was published about five years ago, we saw that 75% of the base jumpers that have been involved with that sport for more than two years have either seen a fatality, have injured themselves significantly, you know, a type of injury that required a surgery, or saw one of their uh, friends getting injured in a way that required a surgery. <laughs> and although that statistics, they keep on pursuing that sport. That obviously tells something about these people. Yeah, and they must have a different relationship with trauma too, not just fear, but trauma. Correct. You're actually spot on. We saw that there is very, very, very low chances that a base jumper or an ice climber would develop PTSD. Something in the brain works differently, function differently, and they would not act the same way um, after seeing a fatality and they would not develop these symptoms that associated with PTSD like other would in that same scenario. Would you leave us with what the next extreme sport is? Uh, what you're seeing people do that might not have existed f- even a couple of years ago? So when we started wingsuit flying about 15 years ago, we would usually jump off a cliff and try to get as far away from it. So when we opened the chute, we would not collide into the cliff. Makes sense. Nowadays, the main thing is proximity flying, which is jumping off the cliff, but trying to fly as close as you can to the cliff, sometimes even between the waterfall and the cliff itself or to the ground, obviously without impacting it. And this is the next big thing in the extreme sports world. That sounds terrifying. (laughs) It is, but in a good way. In a good way. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. That is surgeon and extreme athlete Dr. Omer Maidan. CU hosts the International Extreme Sports Medicine Congress Friday and Saturday. At cprnews.org, you can watch a video of Dr. Maidan base jumping and landing in the back of a pickup truck. This is Colorado Matters.